Rick Elias is a plane crash survivor, TED Talk speaker, and CEO of Red Ventures, a multi-billion dollar company. On this show, you'll hear conversations Rick feels lucky to have had with leaders, athletes, and innovators, plus three things you can learn from each. It's two people, 20 minutes, and three things with Rick Elias. Today's guest is American former decathlete and Olympic gold medalist, Dan O'Brien. You may remember him as the star of some sweet Reebok commercials in the 90s. Dan can throw a 16-pound shot put 53 feet 3 inches. Dave can hurl a javelin 236 feet. This summer, they'll battle it out in Barcelona for the title of world's greatest athlete. You may also remember him from one of the most dramatic moments in sports history, when he failed to qualify for the 1992 Olympics. This height, that's it, or he has uh, lost maybe all chance. He had been on a world record pace and now risking not even qualifying for the team. On this episode, Dan shares what went through his mind in that moment, and more importantly, how he made one of the greatest comebacks of all time. This is Three Things with Rick Elias. Dan, it is such an honor to have you at Red Ventures, so thanks for coming. I want to go back to 1992 because I think it's important to kind of establish that story. You're the favorite going into this event. Reebok has spent their whole marketing budget on uh, on you and Dave. Give us a little bit of context of what did it feel like, the hype, all of that, and then all the way through the, the unfortunate twist and turn. Well, that year, I can honestly say that Dave and I felt like superstars, okay? What it would be like to be one of the most popular players in the NFL. What would it be like to you know, be like Michael Jordan. The only other two commercials out there from, you know, that, that were in this range were, um, Bo Jackson's, you know, uh, Bo no, Bo's nose. And then, and then Michael Jordan, you know, some of the commercials that he had been in, but Dave and I were commercial stars. And I, the easiest way to describe that is, you know, I can remember, you know, people running after you. I went to a Costco in Spokane, Washington, and people were chasing me out to my car. Oh my God, it's Dan and Dave. It's Dan and Dave. And it's just like, oh man, you know, people knew me from my track and field accomplishments, but now people that didn't know track, people that didn't watch sports, they knew Dan and Dave. And I, and you know, we make a joke and say, man, we were so famous. We went on the Arsenio Hall show. <laughs> Remember though, <laughs> Arsenio Hall right, right. was right there next to David Letterman and, and Johnny true. Carson, you know, back in the day. So it was it was a big show. And I remember going on that show, Arsenio, he gets serious. He's trying to get you emotional, trying to trying to get a tear in your eye. And uh, but it was it was a great it was a great experience. And I wouldn't give it up for anything. But I will say that having that stardom, being under the spotlight, provided another layer of of stress and pressure that I just wasn't used to did it get old well it only went on for a year so no it didn't you know that year we I think Dave and I really really relished it I think what got old is you're an athlete you want to be out on the field you want to be training and you know we spent the better part of two weeks filming a number of commercials and over that two-week period you you want the producers you want the marketing team and you know, all those people to be more conscious of your, of your time, you know, Hey, can you please set aside some time for us to go get a run? Can you, can, you know, can we be late to this? And, um, that was the only time that I ever thought, you know, this is getting a little bit old, especially as we got close to the trials. I didn't want anybody from Reebok calling me saying, Hey, look, we need another appearance, you know, here or there. It's just like, look, let me just stay home and train. Did the pressure get to you? I think the pressure did get to me in the fact that the pressure on a third attempt 
was really hard to deal with. And my coaches, you know, my coach today will tell you, any decathlon coach will tell you that the most tense time in a decathlon is getting your athlete over the opening bar in the pole vault, whether it's 12 feet, 16, 17, 14. If you can get your athlete over that first bar, the coach will be relieved, the athlete will be relieved. But that was, it was something I never experienced before. So when I say yes, the pressure got to me, a third attempt is pressure anyways. Now all of a sudden you start looking around saying, there's people in these white shirts. Oh yeah, Reebok did all these commercials. So the pressure just intensified. Up until that point, I would say that the pressure wasn't getting to me. Well, you were I, you were leading at a, at a world record pace, right? Yeah, absolutely. I just was cruising through the competition. All I had to do was just, uh, my goal was to just, win the decathlon, get on the team, or place in the top three, get on the team. Um, but somewhere in the middle of the second day, what happened was the heat affected me dramatically. Because you're in the sun, you think you're warmed up. You think you're ready to go, so you don't take the amount of time you need to warm up. And so my first attempt down the runway was a warm-up jump, and I, and I missed it horribly. And then my second attempt, I'm over it, barely touch it, and the, and the bar comes off. And all of a sudden now, I'm starting to get dizzy because this is the nightmare scenario that everybody talks about. Third attempt. Third attempt. How did I get to a third attempt? I've never seen a third attempt. Have you never had a third attempt before? Up, up to that point, not at an opening bar. I think, you know, you always have a third attempt yes, when, yes, the, yes. when the bar rises and you're jumping for a personal best or something. But no, up until that point, I had, I had never been in, in danger of no hiding. That is interesting. So, you know, Reebok made the most out of it, right? They, they, you guys did a series of commercials after. Do you ever wonder what would have happened if you would have won that gold medal? It's tough to project that, you know. I, I, it's interesting. People have told me how much money I lost. But as an individual, I only guessed about that after I won the 96 gold. And then I can look back and say, oh, you know, had I won 92 and 96 this is how history would have been read. But no, at the time, I, did, I didn't want to think about the money. I didn't want to think about, you know, what that, what that did or didn't do for my career. I don't like to spend a lot of time on what would have happened. But I, I actually think that a lot of your depth and maybe your message, your contributions, your ability to make a difference in others is seeing the adversity that you went through seeing you as a role model of getting up and not letting that define you. And in some ways, I think that there's a beautiful story on that massive amount of pain that you suffered. Do you ever think about that? I certainly do. And I remember because of the way that I handled it, mm -hmm. my coaches got me up. I did the last two events and then I spoke about it. I did interviews about it. I just, I went on talk shows and said, look, this is what happened to me. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to move on from it. I can remember I almost became kind of like the poster child for somebody who failed and then went on to success later. And so parents started to seek me out and ask me questions about failing and how you're able to get over it. And here's the one thing that a lot of people don't realize about athletics. An athlete, when he trains, is as prepared to deal with failure as he is with success. 
I grew up losing, losing baseball games, losing football games, losing basketball games. And so, you know, all of a sudden now I have a streak as a professional that I don't lose and I'm very successful. You know, I'm surprised if you don't lose somewhere along the lines. I just lost the wrong one at at the wrong time. (laughs) But no, I, I was I was very proud of the fact that my coaches put together this plan for me. It made me it made me appreciate, you know, the sportsmanship of it. And up until that point, I had gone for a couple of world records and midway through the first day I would pull out because I wasn't going to break the world record. But after 92, I it's, it's, it's double negative. I never not finished another decathlon the rest of my career. I think there's something really beautiful about this um, that maybe in time will, will even show itself more. Uh, you uh, you use the word failure describing this event. Is that purposeful? Is that the emotional feeling that you get when you think about it? At that moment, it was a failure. When I look at that word now and somebody says, oh, you know, your definition of failure, I can honestly say that you haven't failed until you've given up. So when I look back at 92, I didn't fail. You know, I struggled that day, but I finished the decathlon. And one of the goals of the 10 events is to cross the finish line in the 1500. So ultimately I didn't fail, but I I did fail to make the Olympic team. There is consequences. There's an outcome. So that, that failure is, you know, a word that I associate with that act. And certainly, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a feeling in me. This single purpose drove you for many, many years. I know you still have many goals. Have you found a second purpose? You know, my second purpose, um, and it took me a while to figure this out. I've been married. I've been married 16 years now. My purpose after I retired was to be a better husband. And so my purpose for a lot of years has just been to be a better person for somebody who was always there for me, who was who had always given a little bit more than I had given. So uh, I, I feel like I'm, you know, I feel like as a, as you know, as a for, late 40s and 50s, I'm making up for some lost time and and uh, and you know and that's one of my purposes I've yet to find anything that I'm as passionate about as I was track and field there's just something so exhilarating about being in that kind of condition pushing yourself to that level and having a season of training behind you it's just it's it's absolutely amazing just just the way that you feel the way that you carry yourself and believe uh, in yourself there's through preparation we gain our confidence and there is so much preparation that takes place in the sport of track and field people see people running in the mile and say oh those guys make it look so easy you know they're running 70 miles a week right. you know they're training on the track and they got hills and they're at high altitude and it's just like well yeah they're freaking animals you know i'll find you know something that i am as passionate about but you know i, I love sharing my story i love helping other athletes prepare the closest thing that i could come to it was coaching was coaching in college um the hard thing was is you're coaching a lot of kids who aren't weren't as passionate as i was so right right. but no i you know i continue to continue to look for it every time i go to the olympics though i'm inspired you know so when you when i think about you know what inspires me as much as competing it was like oh you know being it being in london and being seven rows up and seeing Usain Bolt, it's just like, okay, all right, this is, 
I don't have to feel the pain. I don't, you know, I'm watching the decathletes. It's like, okay, well, maybe not competing is not so bad. You know, they're the ones doing all the hard work. I'm just enjoying it. Right. You know, we, uh, we watch sports in part because I think we'd like to watch history, but in as much, I think we watch it because we want to feel what the athletes feel. Uh, and, and in your case, I am sure it was very hard for many people to watch it because that probably brought emotions in everybody. We all have, you know, challenges in us that we're, you know, trying to deal with. So in many ways, you probably not knowingly allow people to deal with that indirectly. But if you think about it, businesses has become, it's like a sports, it's a, it's a sport for non-athletes. The competition of it, the team environment, the need to get better every day, the fact that you're, you know, their market forces. I think you, should, you will make a good CEO. I think if you bring <laughs> that kind of discipline that you had as an athlete, what do you think of that? Well, it's it's interesting you say that because, you know, I there is a, you know, that moment created a lot of, I was here when you failed to make a bar. I remember when you you didn't make it in the pole vault. And so you hear a lot of these stories and some people come up and say, oh my gosh, when you didn't make it, I cried. But what that moment caused was all this support for the next four years. I had people coming up to me, you know, over that four year period that just said, you know, I just want to wish you good luck in 96. And, and it all came together for me in 96. And I, I remember when I was, you know, a young athlete, I was 19, 1993 world championships. I'm getting ready to run the 1500 meters. I just finished the javelin and I'm just thinking, ugh, you know, the stress is hitting me of, of competing in front of a hundred thousand people in an event that I'm not very good at. And I felt very alone, but in 96, because all these people came up to me and said, you know, I was here when you didn't make that vault. I felt like those people were with me in 96. The whole so time. it just, yeah. it just, it just picked me up. That's for beautiful. Sure. So, yeah. What, uh, what advice do you have for young athletes or, or musicians or, you know, actors and actresses, just people that have a passion for something the same way you did? Forget about the outcome. Too many people want to see how far the javelin goes they want to see themselves crossing the finish line first. Be in the moment. Train hard today. Train hard this minute. Train hard this hour. And success is an out. Success will take care of itself. I never thought about the money. I didn't think about winning. I was about execution and getting better each and every day. And when I started training hard and at a level that uh, was commensurate to an Olympic champion, I saw those little improvements each day, and I knew someday these little improvements are all going to add up, and I'm going to have the meat of my life. I'm going to win the Olympic gold medal. I'm going to break the world record, things like that. But I never worried about how far I jumped, how high I jumped in practice, how far that went. Every step was a piece of execution. Every throw across the ring was just execute this part first, before you before you see the outcome you know it reminds me of john wooden's philosophy of you know the games don't matter only thing that matters is practice you know we we talk a lot about red ventures about focusing on inputs not the outputs kind of a similar mindset sure. we actually have a big conference room named that uh because you know you worry about the inputs the output will take care of itself absolutely bruce lee said in a fight the moment i think about winning or losing i'm dead Huh, that is interesting. You know, I have a couple more questions. So you hold a lot of titles. When you look back at titles, how important 
are they? They're great for your ego. You know, and I remember why those titles were important to me. 1990 Goodwill Games, I got to wear that USA uniform for the very first time. And it was a couple days before the decathlon started, and I went to watch the competition. And the women's hurdles was going on. And the announcer said, in lane two, ladies and gentlemen, she's the American record holder. She's the world record holder. She's American record holder in the long jump. Jackie Joyner got the longest introduction I had ever heard in my life. <laughs> and I said, that's what I want. That's exactly what I want. And so, you know, when I look back, it's this, those titles were important to me. Um, and they, you know, they stroke my ego now thinking, you know, I held the American record for 20 years and I was, I was one of the best. But Bruce Jenner taught me years ago that the only title that really matters is that Olympic title is the Olympic gold medal. And I used to think, oh, you know, indoors, outdoors, you know, the heptathlon, pentathlon, decathlon. And Bruce said, just let all that stuff go, man. The only one that people remember is the Olympic gold medal. And I learned from that. That was something that I really took to heart. And so by the time I got to 96, it was the only one that I was missing. Um, titles are important, I think, you know, in the sport of track and field because they also represent your monetary worth. You know, the more titles that you can rack up, um, the more, you know, we get paid because, you know, we get paid in endorsements only. You know, it's, it's I, I wish we got a salary from the league, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but in, but in many ways, um, I don't know who said it, but awards, titles, they're a bit like perfume, though. Right. They're so nice to smell, but so dangerous to swallow. And you see so many people just get to one title and. They, they think they arrived. And what I admire about you was, you know, not only did you, you know, accumulate many titles, but the one that evaded you for a period of time was your single driving force. And that, that's, I like that analogy. And that's, that's really interesting as well. But because, um, you know, it's, I try to talk to a lot of young athletes and they think, well, if I just win this race, everything's going to be great. And this is like, wait a minute, this race, you know? There's always another race. There's always another. There's always another competition. Um, my coaches and I, though, we had this workmanlike attitude, and I love to see it in professional sports as well. Is we got our lunchbox. We're gonna go to work. We got the tools in the lunch. You know, we got the tools in that box, and we're gonna figure out how to make it right. And when we do, we're gonna walk away from it because that's our job. You know, I love to see a quarterback not celebrate when he scores a touchdown. It just drives me bananas when I see a wide receiver catch a first down and he stands up and gives a signal. It's like, no, why are you celebrating? <laughs> it's your job to get first downs, man. Just, just you know, just be a workman. Do your job. Just, yeah. You know, that was the thing. I mean, I would win a decathlon and I would, you know, I would spend some time at, you know, I'd spend some time out the next couple of days and really celebrate. And I want to hear what it. you did after you won <laughs> the gold medal. What was that night like? It was, uh, it was wonderful because of my association and affiliation with some other people that won gold medals that night as well. And one of them was Michael Johnson. Right. He won the gold medal in the, you know, wearing the gold uh, shoes in the 200 meters. And that happened earlier in the night. And the party go late? Oh, yeah. My claim to fame was, though, I, got, I, I met Michael Johnson at the finish line. I was throwing the javelin at the time. He crossed the finish line. But, no, it, the party went late. We were at the, we were at the Hard Rock Cafe. There were some celebrities in the house, and I remember my mom checked out at about 2 a.m. She says, honey, I got to go home. And it's like, all right, mom. And, you know, we, we got out of there pretty late. But it was 
Atlanta being in the United States and being in Atlanta it was it was it was a great celebration and great fun. All right, I have one more question, and this is uh, a bit more personal. Uh, I know you were adopted, and yes. I believe you have seven siblings. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, my kids are adopted. Okay. Um, so we share that in common, a, a common bond in that. Um, tell me what um, what adoption meant to me, to you, and and to your family. Adoption to me means that you were chosen that somebody sought me out, came to a place, found me, and found a connection and said, that's the one that I want. And I went home with those people. I was adopted at the age of two. I don't remember anything before, but I remember the day I showed up at the O'Brien's house. And from that day on, I was, a, I was always an O'Brien. Throughout the years, I've thought about my biological parents but I've never felt a need that I have to find them. I, it, when I find them, my life's going to change. When I find them and I have a relationship, I've always been really, really happy with just where I ended up from an adoption standpoint. And my mom told us all when we were really little that we were adopted. Of, you know, we were bound to figure it out at some point. We had, you know, a few different races <laughs> in that family. <laughs> but um, I just always felt chosen chosen and I and I think one of my greatest fears in life what has always been you know the fear of being left out um, uh, the fear of rejection um, but you know when it came to my family I felt I felt chosen oh, that's beautiful you know I, I I feel that way about our kids I, I felt like uh, we went through a lot of hardships in this journey and I wouldn't have it any other way uh, so listen an incredible privilege. Uh, thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your courage. And thank you for your example. Thank you. I'm happy to be here and I appreciate the opportunity to tell my story. Thank you, Dan. That was an amazing conversation. What a remarkable story. So here are the three things I learned from this conversation. Number one, failure means different things to different people. To me, it's only a failure if you don't learn the lesson. But for Dan, it's only a failure if you give up. Number two, life is a lot more fun when you focus on the inputs, not the awards, and not the medals. If you get a little better every day, success will take care of itself, especially if you're passionate about what you do. And number three, the only way you become a pressure player is by practicing under pressure. Those who are most comfortable with discomfort are the ones who will succeed more often. If you're enjoying the Three Things Podcast, let us know. Be sure to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.